Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading In My Father's House by Corey Tinboom, with permission of Light Trails Publishing and the Tinboom Foundation. And we are on Chapter 8, The Best is Yet to Be. Our concerns reach beyond the borders of Holland. We will all want to know more about other lands, different languages, and people from contrasting cultures. This interest was stimulated by visitors from many countries and by reading good books. During my late teen years, a man came to Holland who focused our attention upon foreign missions. His name was Jan William Gunning, and he started a movement for the Mission Study Advice. Betsy Noli William and I became involved in groups which he formed. During the summer, we went to a conference in Lunturin, a center in the midst of the woods and heather fields. It was exciting to meet real missionaries from all over the world. On the first day of meetings, an elderly missionary led the hundreds of people at the conference in group singing, and our own Noli was chosen to be a soloist. Noli, isn't it thrilling? Imagine you're going to sing for all those people, I said. Oh, Corey, don't remind me, or I won't be able to utter a sound. It was a new experience for all of us, and we listened to the lectures and then divided into smaller discussion groups. We chose what we wanted to study and later used the material in weekly meetings at home. Mission students from a large school led those discussions, and we became great friends with some of them. Many girls we knew were interested in more than study groups. The mission students were as new and different as the subjects we were being taught. Unfortunately, there was very little time for dates. In fact, the only time available was two hours before breakfast. I've never been very alert at an early hour but I learned to accept the challenge of this discipline for the advantage of friendships. I slept with a little rope around my toe. When a boy came to meet me, when I was still asleep, he pulled the end of the rope, which hung outside my window, and I would jerk to attention. Soon we would be walking together over the heather fields, talking about mission activities and what we wanted to do with our lives. It was innocent enough, but not the part of the conference I would relate to Tante Jans. One boy, Albert Deneff, had a girlfriend who was not very strong. She had gone to a doctor for a physical to find out if she was healthy enough to go to the Indonesia, but during the conference she heard that she had been rejected. Those two were very sad, so we invited her to come to the Baye for a visit. She had so much fun with us that she almost forgot about her disappointment. However, a year later, during another mission study conference, she was re-examined and was given approval to go to the mission field. Because of that little act of hospitality, we became quite popular among the mission students. A new world opened for all four of us when we started a mission study group at home. We had such good training at those camps, and I never dreamed how much this would mean years later when I became a tramp for the Lord and visited mission fields on five continents. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 33, 27. Beyond the Dikes My horizons began to stretch. From the camps for missions, we met people from all over the world. Then through the YMCA in Harlem, we had further opportunities to know people from other countries and other denominations. The Y was only a building where young men could have meetings, but tourists came from other countries expecting it to be a hotel. The manager didn't speak English, and many times he brought guests to the Baye, where he knew they would be welcomed. We could exercise our English, broadening our interest in the whole world situation at the same time. I began to learn about Christians who endured so much for their beliefs. Father once told me of the Christians in Russia who were called Dundists. They loved the Lord and were willing to suffer for Jesus. They knew the Bible from cover to cover, and they were very strict in their behavior. Father said, 
God has given Russia a great blessing by sending these Christians to that country. They live in a vast area of Siberia in a kind of community life where young and old are trained to glorify the Lord. It seems so remote to hear about the sufferings of Christians. We were free in Holland, and it was difficult for me to imagine Christians in another land undergoing persecution. More than a half a century passed after Father told me about the Stundis. Ellen de Krohn, my secretary and companion, and I went to Russia. We traveled all the way to Tanzik, far inside Russia, near Siberia, and there we found a lovely church, so dedicated to the Lord that it was a light in that dreary land. These people were Sundas, and I remember Father's story. A very old woman, stooped with age, a lifetime extreme hardship written on her face, came to me and said, Cory Tinboom, I have prayed daily for you for years. I was astonished. How did you know about me? Once I got a care package from Germany. One of the boxes was packaged with a page from a Christian magazine, and I read about your experiences and the work you do now. God told me to pray faithfully for you. It never ceases to amaze me the way the Lord creates a bond among believers, which reaches across continents, beyond race and color. This spiritual bond is something man has tried to establish with big national or world councils and organized ecumenical movements but always misses when the Spirit of the Lord and the truth of his word are not present. Years later, when Father entered a door of prison, he said, Remember, Corey, the best is yet to be. After ten days, Father's Spirit stepped out of that prison and into paradise. For Father, the best had arrived. Chapter 9 Love and the Sound Mind It was 1909, and the world around us was bursting with change. An American explorer, Robert Perry, had reached the North Pole. The doomed Lusitania, one of the largest and most modern ocean liners, was streaming luxuriously across the Atlantic. In Russia, the Tsar was beginning a program of persecution against the Jews, while in Palestine, a young man, David Ben-Gurion, was dreaming of a return of God's chosen people to their ancient land. The early part of the 20th century was preparing the way for a surge of science and an upheaval of society. In Holland, however, our attention was upon the birth of a baby princess, Juliana, heiress to the throne. In man's never-ending quest for man-made peace, the leaders of the world were gathering in the Hague, Holland, to make another attempt to form an international body where nations might try to solve their disputes. Noli, William, Betsy, and I were young people intensely involved in our own pursuits and yet revolving around each other. Noli was a naturally gifted teacher. Eventually, it became her profession. At one time, she taught in Harlem under the headmaster, who was a very narrow-minded, disagreeable man. It was so painful to see our sweet, fun-loving Noli become depressed on Sunday evening as she thought of the next day when she would have to face her school superior again. Her face would get longer and longer, but she knew the children loved her, so she continued as a first-grade teacher. Eventually, she went to another school in Amsterdam, and this took her away from home for the first time. She met Flip Van Warden, also a teacher, and they were married. The Lord gave her seven children, and she had a better chance to use her motherly gifts than in classes at school. My dear, studious brother, William, with his precise beard and inquiring mind, provided an intellectual stimulus to our conversations and home life. Although William was the natural heir to father's business, he did not have the inclination towards watchmaking, preferring to study theology instead. Father never pushed his children into work which they didn't want, and consequently, William did not feel he was disappointing his father by not following in his footsteps. 
We all love music, but William had only one favorite composer, Bach. We learned to sing Bach chorals, just as most children learn nursery songs. Noli sang soprano, William bass, and I alto. How fortunate we were to have a brother, because Bach with a ladies trio would have been rather frothy. William did not have any girlfriends, so when he told his friends at the university that he had asked Teen to marry him, Carol, his good friend, said, I never thought you would marry. You never looked at any girl. When he had been married ten years, William was called to be a minister for the Jews. He went to Dresden, Germany, and studied in the Delicium. His thesis was written on racial anti-Semitism, a subject which may not have pleased some of his professors. He wrote that the severest program in the entire history of the world would come in Germany. The amazing fact is that this study was presented by William in the year 1930, three years before the birth of Hitler's Third Reich. I admired my brother very much and sometimes wondered why God hadn't made me an intellectual. Perhaps he could use my simple way of thinking in some way, I thought, but I certainly didn't know how. When I looked at Betsy, it was unusually accompanied by a sigh. Betsy had beautiful curls. My hair was straight. Betsy was neat and lovely. I was put together as an afterthought. How I loved Betsy, who was seven years older than I. She was not able to work hard because she was weakened by severe anemia. But she managed to accomplish so much. Betsy could turn a drab room into a place of charm. She could transform a dull happening into a rollicking, amusing story. We were introduced to art at an early age, and Betsy could make an art exhibit a tremendous treat when she was the guide. We were so rich in art in Holland and very conscious of our heritage from the masters of the past. When Betsy took me to the Franz Hans Museum in Harlem, she would point out the beauty of each masterpiece. Look, Corey at the way that Hans paints the face of his subjects. Aren't they marvelous? And look at their hands. Have you ever seen anything more beautiful? She would explain to me the exceptional talents of Rembrandt, showing me how he expressed the character of those he painted. Betsy could weave stories through an, a visit and an art exhibit in such an exciting way that I couldn't wait for the next chapter. It added to the richness of my childhood and the quality of my appreciation for classical art and music. Betsy didn't promote herself. She remained in the background, always helping and ready with good advice and a sense of humor. Sometimes she assisted Father with a weekly paper which he wrote for watchmakers, turning an ordinary report on a visit to a factory into an original humorous story. The church of our childhood in later years was the Grautkirk, our St. Bavos, the grand cathedral which played such an important part in our lives. In the late afternoon, there was a service called the Everyday Church, which was supposed to last about a half an hour. Usually not more than 20 persons attended, but the ministers were obligated to conduct the service for the faithful few. Since it was human nature to forget a job you did not like, sometimes the minister did not appear. When I was in my late teens and early 20s, my cousin, Uncle Arnold's son, took his father's job and was an usher or caretaker at St. Bavos. He often telephoned me and said, Corey, no pastor turned up for the service this afternoon. Please come and help us out. I remember once when that request came, I had a particularly full day at the house and in the shop, and my head was blank of any message I could bring to the small gathering of people. I ran to the kitchen where Betsy was cooking, hoping she would have a suggestion. Betsy, what in the world can I tell the people at the cathedral? Her answer came without hesitation. It was as if she had prepared it all day. 
while she told me the sermon, she brushed my coat, fixed my hair, and looked critically at my appearance. Keep your coat on, Corey. Your dress isn't too clean. Take Psalm 23 as your subject. The Lord is my shepherd. Sheep can be very stupid, you know. Sometimes they don't see food behind their backs. We need the Lord just as much as sheep need a shepherd. Betsy told me the whole outline of the sermon while she accompanied me to the door. I'll pray for you. I'm sure God will bless the message. I was halfway through the little alley and turned to see her still standing in the doorway. Betsy, I can't think. What hymn shall I give them to sing? Just ask them for their favorites. There was a blessing in the cathedral that day. While in the kitchen of our house, Betsy prayed. She was tidy about her person, her possessions, and her thoughts. I remember years later I passed her cell in the German prison in Holland where we were political prisoners of the Nazi regime. The Red Cross had just sent a food package to the prisoners, and in the little corner shelf stood their food in neat rows. Over a stool was a handkerchief and a bottle with two tulips, a present from the judge with whom Betsy had prayed after the hearing. In those stark surroundings was an atmosphere of cleanliness and order, which was the stamp of Betsy's personality. Although we had our individual interests, we loved a family project together. Mama and Papa's 25th anniversary was our chance to plan a real celebration. Nola had been working as a teacher, and she had to supply the finances for the party. She had saved as much as she could in order to rent a hall of the YMCA. We planned the entertainment, but that was free, except for the personal price of our courage we had to pay to perform before all the guests. William came as Johann Sebastian Bach, playing his part with a dignified flourish. He was a musician, and I probably thought it was easy for him. Noli, who loved to dress up, was Sarah Bernhardt. Why hadn't I learned those social graces? That evening of the party, Mother was flushed with excitement. I thought she had never looked more beautiful. Father escorted her to the YMC as if he were taking the queen herself to a royal ball. Dozens of friends from the rich to the servant class were at the party. Merchants on the streets, clients whose clocks Father repaired and wound, People to whom Mother had brought soup and comfort all swarmed into the hall to bring their love and congratulations to the popular watchmaker and his wife. When the party was almost over, I finally mustered the nerve to contribute my part to the entertainment. I was introduced with a flourish by William and stepped forward in a borrowed Salvation Army uniform. I can't remember whether uniform fit or if I sang in tune, but I do know that an edge was taken off my shyness in my first public appearance. The four of us had pooled our money to buy a silver serviette ring for father and mother, which William had engraved with a Hebrew inscription. It said, The Lord is good, his mercy is from eternity, and his faithfulness from generation to generation. The Lord was faithful in giving me strength to sing in front of all those people. I didn't think I dreamed when I was 17 that I would be called to speak before thousands someday. His faithfulness is certainly from generation to generation. Ethics, Dogmatics, and Bathtubs In 1910, a Bible school opened in Harlem. When I saw the program, I was so excited. There was so much I wanted to learn. I plunged into the new enterprise, taking seven different subjects at one time. For two years, I struggled with ethics, dogmatics, and church history, Old Testament, New Testament, story of the Old Testament, and story of the New Testament. Such an undertaking might not be so difficult for a clever student. But that, I wasn't. During this time, Mother suffered a slight stroke. Although she became weaker physically, her gentle spirit and positive attitude were an encouragement to all of us. 
My workload at home increased. It became more of a chore to keep up with my studies. Finally, the day of judgment arrived, examinations. The first part was practical application. We had to give lessons and answer questions from students. I passed this quite well and was full of confidence when I appeared before the group of ministers who were to give me the second part of the examination. The ministers gathered to interrogate me in a room which should have held no terror for me. It was a large conference room opening off a familiar corridor in St. Bavo. Dot and I played in that room as children, but when I saw the rather formidable-looking gentleman sitting on both sides of the massive table, my courage began to wither. The fireplace on one side of the room was large enough for me to walk into, but I realized I was no longer a child hiding in the coat room, so the principal wouldn't see me. The president of the church asked me the first question. Miss Timbo, what did you study for ethics? I followed the teaching of Mr. Johnson for two years, I began, but got no further. St. Bavo was unusually chilly, but the icicle seemed to form on the ceiling. Pastor Williamson, the president, lifted his eyebrows and stared at me. He and Pastor Johnson had been theological students at the same university, and their disagreements were well known among the faculty. You studied nothing else? Pastor Williamson asked disdainfully. It was tense. I was tense. Suddenly, I couldn't remember a thing. Out of seven different subjects, I managed to get seven failing grades. William, why didn't I have your brains? When I returned home with the news of my defeat, Betsy was the first one to console me. However, I didn't think she gave me the sympathy I deserved because she said, you must do it again. Something about the way she said it made me repress my objections. When you have failed an examination, Corey, you know your whole life that you have failed. When you do it again, then you know your whole life that you have succeeded and have the diploma. Eight years later, I took the examination again and passed. The important lesson I learned from my Bible school experience was that from these organized studies, we learned the wisdom of the wise, but not much of the foolishness of God. The best learning I had came from teaching. I could serve the church by giving catechism lessons and preparing people who were to take the confirmation. I was also licensed to give Bible lessons to non-Christian schools. Parents who sent their children to secular schools could elect to have their children take these lessons. I learned to listen to the Holy Spirit when I prepared for the lessons. And when I talked with the children and the young people, my lessons were more of a conversation with them than telling them what I knew. It was a joy to learn in this way much of the reality of the gospel. Talking over my experiences with Father and the others was an added training. Besides this important result of that fruitful time, there was a new experience that I received a small amount of money for this and decided to save that special income for a very special project. When I was growing up, there was one luxury I wanted, a flush toilet. Of course we had toilets, one upstairs and one downstairs, but they were accommodations which necessitated a once-a-month service from the workers in the city's sanitation department. As I saved my salary from the Bible teaching, it was with great anticipation of supplying the bay with two porcelain pleasures. Next, a luxury of pure ecstasy, I saved to buy a bathtub. Each room in the house had a bowl to use for washing, but we were very frugal with the precious heat during the winter, and there were many mornings when we broke the ice to splash our face. When my bathtub fund was large enough to buy the splendid fixture, it was a thrilling day at the bay the bathtub was equipped with a gas water heater so that it no longer was necessary to be a polar bear to get clean. We had a platform built under the tub so that the water would drain out. 
Somehow, all those hours struggling over ethics and dogmatics and all the rest of the subjects which enabled me to teach were worth it to achieve such a magnificent material goal. How I enjoyed that tub. Patriotism and Prayer Discussing the truths of the Bible were as natural to our family as talking about sports or current events. It was remarkable how Father found so many contrasting people for his Bible study groups. It was this willingness to share his time with others which made him so rich with friends. For three years we had a prayer meeting every Saturday night in the Hempstead, a neighboring village. Father, Betsy, and I went on the tram car to the meeting. In hot weather and cold, rain or snow, it was a regular part of our life. In 1914, war swirled around our little country. Each nation had been trying to increase its own wealth and power for decades, and the threat of a clash was becoming a reality. Only five years had passed since the Hague Peace Conference, and yet all the great powers seemed to believe that threats and force were the tactics to use to get what they wanted. The world was engulfed in a terrifying game of fear. From the time the Australian Crown Prince, Archduke Francis Ferdinand, and his wife were assassinated, one after another of the countries of the world issued declarations of war. Father continued to pray for the Queen and the government of Holland, as he always had. We were very patriotic and loyal to the Queen Wilhelmina and her Prime Minister, Abraham Kuyper, who is also a prominent theologian. A division of purpose developed in our weekly prayer group. Casper, it's not right to pray for those in government. Some of the people said, the world is evil, Satan is the prince of this world, and we should only look at the kingdom of God. But Father said, as Christians we are in the world, but not of the world. We must not give over our country to the enemy, because then we would be disobeying First Timothy 2, which says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Verse 1 and 2. As weeks and months of the World War I went on, the pietists became more uncomfortable as Father, Betsy, and I continued to pray for our government. The difference in this basic belief drove the group apart. The others began to draw more and more into their spiritual shells until we could no longer meet together for prayer. Beyond this world. Father was not quarrelsome about his biblical beliefs, but he stood fast in the theological debates especially with Tante Jans. They used to have some rather lively discussions, which Mother and I didn't enjoy. One of the main points of distinction between Father and Tante Jans came over faith and works. In the book of Philippians, it's written, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Philippians 2 12 and 13. Father talked more about it. It is God which worketh in you. And Tante Jans emphasized, work out your salvation. I believe the fear she had of death may have been the result of never quite believing she had worked hard enough for God. The Great Journey. One of the great human mysteries I shared with Father was why Tante Jans, a powerful evangelist, a woman with a zeal to teach and write about the Lord Jesus, had such a dread of dying. When the time came, when we knew she didn't have much longer on earth, we didn't know how she would react. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 Father loved Tante Jans, as we all did, in spite of her crusty manner and argumentative personality. Jans, 
Father patted her wrinkled hand gently and smiling into the no longer stern face. Are you ready to make the great journey? The doctor said it can't be long before you have to leave us. Tante Jan's face lit up. Jesus said, I give my sheep everlasting life. That's good. I cannot do anything more. I'm safe in the hands of the good shepherd who gave his life for us. He prepared a mansion in the house of the Father for me. When the hour of death arrived, God took away her fear. On the day of her burial, the house was full of people who told how she had been used by the Lord to bring them to him. We told them about the joy she had and that the fear of death had vanished the moment she knew she had to die. A friend of hers, a nurse, said, I'm so glad to hear that. I often wondered if in the hour of death the devil would take away my assurance of salvation. I've seen so many Christian people die in agony, attacked by fear, although I knew they were children of God. Another nurse, who also came to honor her friend, gave some good advice. Just tell the Lord that you have this fear, then pray that when the hour of death comes for you, Jesus will protect you against any attack of the enemy, and that he will give you a clear experience of his presence. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. This prayer will be answered. I've seen many people dying, too. All who prayed this prayer beforehand died in great peace and assurance of Jesus' presence and salvation. I could see it in their faces. When the second aunt in our family died, it made me think more about time and eternity. We are citizens of heaven. Our outlook goes beyond this world. I know the truth of the Bible when it says that God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and a sound mind. Her silent love. One morning I was talking to Father about a chance to make some attractive magazine advertisements for our business when I heard the sound of a crash. I ran into the kitchen and saw Mother slumped by the sink. A large kettle had fallen on the floor. Her left arm hung limply at her side as she struggled to hold onto the counter. Mama, sit down, dear. I helped her to the chair and ran to get Father. Hurry, something's wrong with Mama. Father rushed in and put his arm around her. She looked up and whispered in a voice which was barely audible. Oh, Cass, we've been so happy together. She thought she was going to die right then. We supported her carefully and guided her to her room. When the doctor had examined her, he comforted us by saying that strokes could be dangerous, but frequently were not so serious. One of my patients had a stroke and after that went to Switzerland three times. Your mother can live another eight to ten years. Mother never fully recovered the use of her body after her next stroke and for the remaining of her earthly life, her speech was limited to one word, Corey. With a word and the nod of her head and the opening and closing of her eyes, we saw a display of love which enriched all of us. We developed a method of communication which we would try to guess her thoughts, and she would answer with a motion of her head. It was such a joy to be with her, and my own attitude improved during the next three years. God allowed Mother to be with us after her most severe stroke. I began to understand what the verse in Romans meant, which says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8.18 God's glory shone through Mother. Next time it will be chapter 10. That chapter 8 was a very short, it was like five minutes, so I went ahead and, and added on the chapter 9. So it made it a little unusually long uh, time, but I'm sure you won't mind that. Well, I love you. I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.